Hey. This is the hashtag CNF podcast, a conversation with writers, authors, reporters, and filmmakers about creating works of nonfiction. I'm your host, Brendan O'Mara. This is a big episode, a milestone, if you will. It's number 25, and in it you'll hear gems like this. A successful writer is someone who alters me. Amazed I didn't screw that up. For episode 25, the production value needed to be, you know, huge. Oh, and uh, who was that, by the way? Uh, Her name is Elaine Johnson, and her essay, The Math of Marriage, won Creative Nonfiction's Essay Contest for issue number 59, dedicated to the theme of, you guessed it, marriage. Elaine is the second creative nonfiction contest winner on the show, the first being Harrison Scott Key, who won the Southern Sin Contest. I spoke with him on episode four. Go check it out. As for this one, occasionally you may hear Elaine's husband in the background. Because Elaine is partially deaf, he acted as her ears when Elaine couldn't read my lips through the video. I tried to edit out the confusing parts, but sometimes you'll hear him in the background talking or laughing. You'll just have to deal. Okay? Good? Good. And one last thing. Go subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and subscribe to my monthly newsletter at brendanomara.com. Follow me on the Twitters and the Instagrams at Brendan O'Mara for both handles. That is it. So enjoy this silver episode with Elaine Johnson. exciting because I've never been on a podcast, although I think that I'm going to host one. Oh, fantastic. That'll <laughs> be, I'll be one of your first subscribers then. <laughs> oh, no. There you go. Oh, boy. Well, um, so at what point did you know that you wanted to be a writer? Well, I'm thinking like in utero. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure. So you're born to be a writer. Yeah. And then about the time I got to sixth grade... I was really sure, and I mean really, in sixth grade we had this awesome teacher who made us write spelling word short stories every week, and so a couple of friends and I would compete to see who could come up with the the most gut-busting short story, and as you can imagine, they probably sucked, because they were sixth grade short stories with 20 stupid words, but that's how I knew. But a lot of times, even even at a very young age like that... uh, the, those little kernels of talent often sort of manifest themselves. Um, yes. Yeah, so like, did anyone at that at that age like? Did you have a teacher or a mentor that said, "Okay, well, Elaine's got some talent here. Like, uh, maybe I need to sort of like sort of uh, nurture this a little bit." Well, it's true. It's like um, it. It's that first taste of getting attention for your writing mm-hmm. that you know people are like laughing at this, 
and then they can't wait until next week when you write another one. So it's like, hmm, that, that's good. I like that. I want to do that some more. Yeah. So that, that really started it. Right. Yeah. That's, there's that almost like stand-up comedian instant validation that you can get from a piece of writing that can be uh, it just that's it gives you that energy to keep going. That's true. Right. So who who helped you along your path as a writer as you began to take it more and more seriously? Well, it's like really weird that my mother's brother, my uncle Mac, was really instrumental in helping me write because he just thought it was the the coolest thing ever that I was very young and wanted to write. He was a brain surgeon. Mm. So he would sit with me and listen to my writings and then offer critiques and I'm like I was like eleven or ten when he started that. And then my dad would do the same thing. They both were really supportive, um, because I wrote uh what are they? Optimist you know the Optimist Oratorical Contest, which is the Optimist Club International's speech writing contest every year they would have that so school kids could enter that and my dad would really get behind helping me write those and perform them and all that so both of those males what do you remember about those early uh speeches that you wrote what what were they about god this is so horrible (laughs) it's so the first piece that i oh lord the first piece that i ever remember having published was a poem called The Yellow Rose, and it's just the most hideous piece of crap in the world. (laughs) And I can't believe they published it. I think they thought I was probably, you know, like mentally challenged, and they were like, poor thing, and we're going to print this for her. But then I wrote a really cool little poem at the same time that was called Is, If, or But, and it was like playing on words. It was really cute. Oh, nice. I remember that. So when you were getting started as a writer, I, what did being successful look like to you? And um, how has that changed over the years? Well, in high school, you know, successful writer met best-selling author, like huge house, tons of money. That, that was it. That's what everybody thought. If you're going to be a successful writer, that's what you're going to have. Yep. And, and that's completely changed. Now, a successful writer is someone who alters me with his or her work. If I read it and it floors me and I can't get over it, then I go, now that's successful writing. Mm. It's and I want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, I've had um, Glenn Stout on the program a couple times, and uh, he's the series editor for Best American Sports Writing. And one of his big barometers for for passing along a piece of writing to then the guest editor for the anthology is does he want to reread it again? Like he gets to the end of the piece and does he want to go right back to the beginning and start over again? Like that's his big measure. And I think that's, I think you hit the nail on the head. Like that is truly successful prose that it just, it hits on a certain level and you do want to just go back and consume it again. It's all you can eat buffet. That's right. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Good analogy. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, getting to your 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 essay here, the the math of marriage, which won the creative nonfiction uh, marriage essay contest, which is like talk about an honor. I, I, it's hundred. I'm sure they receive hundreds upon hundreds of entries, and yours stood above. So, what was that? What was that day like when you got the notification that you won? This, the, this is so bizarre. It really is. I was taking a bath 
that morning. And <laughs> I, when I submit work, I typically forget it like the day after I submit. I'm like, okay, I, I don't think about it anymore. So I had forgotten all about that. And it was like months and months. And, and that morning I was washing my hair and I, and I sat up and went, oh, I can't believe they never sent me anything about that story because I really like that. I'm <laughs> so proud of that essay. So I was thinking, obviously it's been this long, you know, they didn't want it. Yeah. So I got finished and went downstairs and opened up my computer and the first email, it said the math of marriage in parentheses. And I went, oh my God, that's so funny. I'm getting this rejection right now. <laughs> and, I, and then I read it and I, and I opened it up and the first thing I saw in there was, and not only do we want to publish it? And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> and I, I think I was in shock for like an hour after it because I really thought about it literally 30 minutes before I opened the yeah. email for the first time. Yeah, so that must have, <laughs> like, just it, because it's so competitive in the creative nonfiction is like the, the flagship literary journal of the genre. I mean, what did that mean to you to, to, to win this contest. I mean, talk about, uh, it's just, it, it must've just been so gratifying and validating well, and no, just a thrill. Brevity, you know, brevity. Yeah. Well, yep. brevity was the iconic thing in my, when I was getting the MFA and our, um, advisor had been published in brevity. So I was like, well, if she's been published in there, I'm going to try. So I sent out a piece to them, right before I graduated and then they accepted it. And so I thought, well, this is easy, you know. <laughs> so another friend of mine who graduated around the same time and I talked about that and we were discussing how just unbelievable it would ever be to get anything in creative nonfiction. And I, I mean, this was back in 2009 or 11 or something like that. And, and I was just back then already thinking, Oh my God, that would be the pinnacle. So, yeah. whenever they sent me that, I thought, okay, obviously they are all on crack. <laughs> and so, I'm really sorry that they have an addiction, but damn. <laughs> You're you know, like, God I'm bless gonna... that addiction. Cause... <laughs> <laughs> so, so, how did you come to that essay? How what? How, how did you come to that essay? Like, what? what oh, uh, yeah. Well, you know, obviously I've been married so many times that when I saw the the theme, marriage, I was like, well, <laughs> come on, I have got to write about this. Yeah. So I um, have always had this image from my first wedding in my head of that, that, the Christ that was hanging on the wires because it was really surreal. It was bouncing in the air conditioning the whole time I was walking down the aisle. And so all of these years, I was like, I have got to find a way to include that in something. Yeah. So once I saw that theme, it was like, yay, I have somewhere to use it. And I I think that you were going to ask me um, what my writing process is like. So I'll tell you about that. Yeah. Whenever I write anything, I'll like see a theme or a prompt or something. And then I have to let it percolate for a long time. I just... Think about it when I'm driving. I used to drive a lot, and, and I would think the whole, I'm writing in my head the whole time. And then when I'm ready to write the piece after I've been percolating for weeks or months or however long, I really honestly sit down, write it all right then in one sitting because mm. I've already got it. 
and then I will read it aloud, make sure that it all sounds like me and that I don't need to change anything. And then that I'm it. I'm, I'm good. So that's, that's so yeah. So you put in basically a lot of your drafting takes place inside your own head before you get down and start writing the piece, right? Like you just think about it a lot. Right. I don't ever draft it. The only things I'll ever write um, are research notes. Like if I know I have to have research for a piece, I'll go do a bunch of research and keep a bunch of notes. But I don't ever write a word, really, mm. until I'm really ready to do it. Huh. So now you've said from an early age you wanted to be, you wanted to be in this, you wanted to be a writer. Um, what were those early days? Like as you go to college, what were some of those first writing gigs like for you? And you mean in the MFA or in just normal college? Just normal, like, like right around college, like when, when you were just getting started. And we'll talk about the MFA for sure, uh, but well, but right at the beginning. When I went to undergrad, my parents had other plans. They thought I was going to go to law school, so they had that design. So I was in a, but I was in an advanced curriculum, so I missed all the core stuff, and I um, took pre-law materials, and, but I did an English major. So in all of the English classes, we would have, um, the, it was weird, there's two professors who were married, and I just loved them. And I used to tell everyone I majored in Stegi because I had them back and forth, the husband and wife, for almost all of my English classes. But Professor Stegi, the male, told us at the beginning of the first day, on the first day, he was like, I don't come in here expecting an A. I don't give A's. Forget it. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I was like, well, that's my little challenge then because I was always an A student. I wasn't going to make a B or I would die. <laughs> so it was, it was really fun because I just loved the heck out of writing. And I would write and write and write to try to please this guy. You know, it was like, here's my audience. I know I have to make him happy. So I would keep on writing until he said, you've done a good job. So now you've said like before you go, look to expand on a longer piece of writing, um, you think about it a lot. Um, do you ever suffer from any degree of writer's block? Oh gosh, yeah, oh my lord, all the time. <laughs> How do you deal with it's that? Um, uh, it's 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 impossible sometimes, and I just don't write. And that's, it's, that's an unforgivable sin, really, for writers, <laughs> because I just will go for long times when I don't write. I don't submit very much work. I have friends who submit hundreds of pieces every year, and I submit you know five or six because I just go through these periods where I don't have time or mm-hmm. I have writer's block. So I, I don't get over it. I really don't. I just don't write that piece. Mm. and move on and I'll find something else because I have such a hard time with that. Is it is it um, like a, a perfectionist type thing? Like you have a hard time getting it out of your head in that sense? Or is it sometimes just maybe you don't have uh, an idea that inspires you to get to the page? Well, it's, it's really kind of both. I'm, I, you know, when I was in um, college and I even had to write academic papers, like research papers, anything, I would write one draft, and that was it. I was done because I was like, well, this is perfect. So mm-hmm. I now submit this. And, and it, it, it was. I mean, it would, I would always get an A because I knew what to say. And so 
if it doesn't come easily for me, I'm just, I just give up. And that's mm. ridiculous, but I do. Mm. And so it's part of that perfectionist thing. But then the not coming easy to me part is because I get really bogged down with a million things to do, like 4,000 student papers to grade. Yeah. And there's just no way that I'm going to get back to writing. So I'll lose, I'll lose that inspiration altogether. Right. Right, and uh, and because you you invest like in those few pieces that you submit per year, uh, because you invest so much of your energy like, in those, and and all of us deal with rejection in some form or, or another. It's um, and, and because you put all that kind of energy into so few pieces, I wonder how you deal with that kind of rejection when you're not putting out a hundred pieces where the rejections can kind of like will bounce off you. I suspect because you submit so little relative to some of your other friends that maybe those rejections kind of hit harder. Um, maybe I'm just being pre- presum- uh, presumptuous there, but I wonder how you deal with uh, rejection when you put your, put your work out there. Well, I have, st- there are just so many, there are like 10 rejections for every, you know, acceptance or more, but I just have to remember that every single author who's ever been successful in any way also had dozens of, of rejections for every acceptance. And if if some people outside of your family members, and we'll get to that in a little bit, if <laughs> outside your family are saying, hey, you know, you're pretty good at this, then you kind of have to think, well, okay, I accept that, that someone else likes my work, so I'm going to just keep on plugging away. And if you submit a couple of things at the same time when one of them gets rejected you still hang on to that little bit of hope that the next one won't mm-hmm. get rejected and that's that's really the best way to do it yeah, Keep yeah. It. i have a, a friend of mine who's in sales he's not a writer at all but um he uh, but he would when he would go out trying to sell ads for this website he was working for um the way he deals with rejection was um no is just one step closer to yes and so he just he didn't really let them accumulate and uh in a way I kind of, what I took away from that is like there's really only one rejection and that's the one on the top on the top of the pile and you just got to keep pushing that pile like yeah. underground so all you see is that one he's like oh yeah I've only been rejected one time like one time a thousand times but all you <laughs> see is the one and that kind of it just doesn't let you get swamped i know there are some other people too who who want to see all those rejections and they want them to pile up so they can then use that as motivation. Uh, for me, I would get bought. That, I find that demoralizing, but <laughs> so I usually, <laughs> I, I discard them. Um, so that's well, I think, um, one, one thing that I tend to do if one hurts me particularly is I just don't like delete it really hard. You know, like, like I'm pushing the button delete so hard because I'm just so mad at that one particular thing. Yeah. And that always feels really good. <laughs> it's like the, it's like, you know, nowadays with the, the way cell phones are and portable phones, like there's no satisfaction in hanging up on anyone anymore. You know, <laughs> You know, the, we, you know, what we need to do is develop an app on the phone that's actually like the slam hang-up. So you can actually be angry. You hit the button and it actually snaps the phone shut. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so you said you're a teacher. Um, so um, like, talk, talk a little bit about your teaching and um, how that affects your writing. Hmm. Well, 
I love the teaching part of teaching. I, I really despise the grading part of teaching. Mm-hmm. So I'm constantly taking small breaks to go over to Facebook to grouse about how much I hate grading. <laughs> but I, I just honestly love the process of getting some information to someone else, especially through the online classroom. Mm-hmm. It's just the coolest thing because I get to write all the time. So teaching for me is writing. I get to write my responses to them on the discussion boards. I write them long notes of feedback. And and it always um, jump starts me when I get back into a class. If I'm having any kind of writer's block or anything like that, as soon as I start having the back and forth with my students, then I get that inspiration again and I start writing again. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a good thing for me to have a class because I get to have that constant inspiration from them too because their writing is always pretty inspirational yeah what questions do they frequently ask you or what are the most asked questions that they that they propose to you uh, when it comes to uh, say their own work but also trying to do this professionally in some capacity well, so most of the classes, all of the classes that I teach are, are creative writing. And I have some, I teach the graduate program, master's program in creative nonfiction. And those people, the, the students in those classes always are interested to know if anybody would even care about the ideas in the memoir excerpt. That's their, their biggest fear is that no one will give a rat's ass about their, their experiences. And that's just the you know farthest thing from the truth mm-hmm. because every single person has something that will resonate with someone so it's like no now don't you can't feel that way that what you have to say is not important mm-hmm. it, because every one of us has something to say that is yeah yeah to that end i would say that it's uh you have to like toe that that weird line between being like kind of self-indulgent but also telling your story in a in a in a sort of captivating way. And I I always feel like the way good memoir works is almost like the narrator and all those characters, they kind of dissolve away and then you almost sort of superimpose your own life onto theirs. And so they kind of carry you through, but, but you're always, you're always um, sort of like living your own experience through them too. So it's like memoir almost becomes like this handholding thing. Like they're kind of, this is my experience, but I know you're having it too. So, but you know, I get to experience in the book for you, but come along for the ride. That's right. Exactly. That is the thing. And the, uh, the one thing that I think is hardest for the, for beginning or emerging writers is to keep in mind that it, although your experiences are going to, to correspond with someone else's, the whole point in your writing is to figure out that universal truth or that insight that goes beyond just what happened to you. You, you know, it's not good enough just to say, you know, I did this A, B, C, D. You have to draw some sort of, not necessarily a conclusion, but you have to draw some sort of knowledge that you've gained from that so that you can share that. If, you don't, if you're not doing that, you're not going to really reach many people. You're, you'll still reach your family members. Yeah. Because they're always going to lie to you and tell <laughs> you that your writing is fantastic. They <laughs> uh, can't listen to that. Yeah. So how did you uh, get beyond just the pure validation from family members uh, saying that your work was great? How did you find that the honest feedback you needed to keep 
growing in this craft? Well, um, instead of family, because my family, I am not joking, they don't read anything I write. I'm like, what is wrong with you people? (laughs) I'm your blood. They don't care. So they don't read anything. They just pretend they do, and then they show it when they have not a clue about what was in there. But um, I have friends who read it, you know, whatever, and I don't really necessarily trust that either because, you know, they're not going to necessarily tell you that it sucked. But what is better is having online or virtual writing communities, Mm. which is what I have. I would love to get in a, a real live writer's group, but I cannot find one, so I just keep to my online ones. And I'm in a whole bunch of them. Uh, there, are, there are tons, so if anyone's out there thinking, you know, you have no one and writing is so isolating, which it is, you go online, you can find a, a multitude of online writing groups, and you just join them, and you discuss writing, and you share um, submission ideas, and even do workshops, ask people to, to prove for you, you prove for them. I'm always doing that. Mm. So I just that's the best process because these people are technically strangers and they have no, no reason to tell you something not true. So how did you find those online communities to, uh, to form these groups? Are you saying how did I find? Yeah. Yes. Um, well, first I, I actually Googled you know, writing groups, but because I'm a member of AWP, which is the Association for Writers and Schools that Teach Writing, Mm -hmm. you can find in the back of their, um, the newsletter and things that they send out, you can find all kinds of groups like that. Plus on Facebook, I think I joined one writer's group and then Facebook gives you lists of other writer's groups. Mm. And then I actually created one. Oh, nice. So I have What's the name. Of, What's the name of the one you created? The, the writer's group on Facebook is Coffee Clatchers. And okay. it was started because I made a, a forum in my, in my classes at Southern New Hampshire University called the Coffee Clatch. And that's where we could talk outside of the main discussion boards and just chit chat and have fun. And after my first class ever did that, I loved them so much, I didn't want to lose touch with them. So I started this this group on Facebook so that all of my students who want to keep up with me and I want to keep up with them can all join this great writers group. And, and it, I love it. I can't live without them. Wow. That's, that's really like it's a great service that you're providing in a way, like a public service to fellow writers to be able to form a group. Cause it is, as you know, especially if you're you know, a writer just uh, writing essays or a freelance journalist of some form or just a freelance writer, books, you name it. It is kind of isolating. You get a, lot, a lot of hours just at home kind of by yourself. So I don't know, like, what, uh, what inspired you to, to do this? Did you sort of see the own, your, own, uh, sort of your own isolation in a, in a way you were scratching your own itch? When I have <laughs> student writers who blow me away. And I mean, I'm going, do you have any concept of how fabulous your writing is? And they clearly don't. They have no idea how good they are. I want to push and push and push them to, to submit their writing because if a student does that and gets published, then he or she will say, okay, it wasn't just a fluke. It wasn't just this one professor who's really nice. So this started way back when I taught for 
mm, a school that got shut down by the government for bad things. But <laughs> I was, you know, I wasn't part of the bad things. And I was teaching in this school in, in little lowly composition classes. And I had a student who wrote an essay and I was like, dear God, this is so freaking good. You have got to try to get this published. So it was about raising free range chickens. And she submitted it to her most beloved magazine that she gets about that kind of thing called Country Time magazine mm -hmm. that had been around for decades. And dad gummit, it was a cover story. Wow. They like snapped that sucker up. They put her on the cover. And I was like, you know, just bawling because I was so excited for her. And then even better than that, she went into her favorite um, the tractor supply company store and she was like look because they were selling it she's like look I'm in there and they hired her on the <laughs> spot because she had that wow. so it's like best story ever in my life of a student's success I want more of those yeah yeah so like alright I have to push these people and I can't push them enough in the 10 weeks of our class there's, there's just not enough so I want them to join the group so I can slam them with submission opportunities and say, hey, you four really need to submit to this and you three need to submit to this and, and keep hammering away until they do it. And then when they get published, you know, we can have like a big, huge celebration and it's well, so cool. <laughs> yeah, that's great. They, it's just so wonderful that your students and, and people in your groups have that kind of advocate in the corner because it's it really is easy to get down on yourself. And, and uh, it's like the most fun I have. I'm not kidding. It's like I'm not kidding that I have more excitement when they get published than when I get published. It's smaller, mm -hmm. but only a little bit. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, my God, I, I love that. It's the best feeling. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, all right, like so. I, I wonder too. I, I love asking this question to everyone who comes on. Uh, uh, to what extent do you uh, reread books? Um, you know, some people they th they say there's so many books, I'm just going to try to read as many as possible. Others will just say there's so many books out there, I can't read them all, so I'm just going to reread. A lot of the great ones over and over again, and some yeah. new ones here. Um, I know I'm a I'm a rereader, voracious rereader of books, and I wonder where you stand on that. Um, I have there are so many. I have so many books that I reread to death. I have a we have actually two copies of Stephen King's um, on writing. Mm. The, the oh, that's, oh, that's the, such a good book. Oh my God. One of them is in tatters. I mean, it's it's actually in two pieces because we broke the spine so badly. But I have to, I read that all the time. But um, another, and if you haven't read this, for God's sake, run. Like, why are you still sitting there? It's A, a Girl Named Zippy by Haven Kimmel. You know, I read it a while ago. I need to read it again. It's Oh, my God. And I, I love it so much. My book is like, it's. It's almost ruined. It's water stained from tears of laughter and crying. I mean, it's just so wonderful. I think I've I've licked it a few times, and it's just uh, oh God, I love that book. And you just rub it um, all that, over your no, just, just to absorb it. Wallow, wallow all in it. Oh, I love it so much. Hoping it would osmose yeah. into me. And also Bleak House Dickens Bleak House, which is 
a really humongous book, but I've read that more times than I can remember. I don't know why. Mm -hmm. I just, there are certain turns of phrases that actually all three of those people and bazillions more make that I I have to go find again. Mm -hmm. So I can feel the feeling that I had the first time I ever read the line, you know, where you're just shocked. You have to stop for a moment, maybe take a Valium, you know, (laughs) breathe a little bit because it's just so, so good that you can't believe anyone thought it up. Yeah. Oh, that I feel that way a lot with, um, the way Dickens closes out the tale of two, uh, a tale of two cities with, uh, like I, I see that I hold a sanctuary in their heart. Uh, and, and it just, and it goes on and on like that entire passage. It just, like, I'm, I almost want to quit writing altogether because you can't write a. It's it can't be done. It can't be matched. You know he he wins. He gets the gold <laughs> medal, and it's it's like, but you you know you get that out of your head and you realize that your own taste and your own sensibility will come through in its own special way. And you let Dickens be Dickens, and you you love <laughs> him and enjoy him and cherish him for that. Um, exactly. Yeah. That's- I saw that you had Sarah Einstein on. Yeah. And I'm about, I just got her book. Oh, it's wonderful. Bought, and I can't wait. I can't wait. I have to get finished with this week, which is the last week of my term, and then I can actually read. I'm I'm so excited. Oh, it's <laughs> such a good book. It's uh it's what I call like an other person centric memoir. Like it's yeah. it focuses so much on on Mott. Right. Uh, but she does. It's just a, it's such a good book. I read it. I read it really fast. And and the way she speaks about it, uh, spoke about it on the podcast was just it was really cool. I think that'd be a good like you read the book and then go listen to her episode and hear her insights into how she uh, wrote the book and her whole process. It was uh, pretty cool. And I just can't wait. Oh, <laughs> Sunday will just get here. <laughs> So what does your, say, like the first maybe 60 to 90 minutes of your day look like, like your morning routine, like how you get the engine started? It's so terrible. <laughs> I have a collection of coffee cups. like, <laughs> And that says, I'd, I'd love to stay. <laughs> but um, I can't live without coffee. I, I think that my poor, I have a K cup coffee maker, of course, and it's like every day the little light flashes to say, more water, please. I'm like, really? Again? Damn it. I thought it was 64 cups. What is going on? So I think I might be overdoing the coffee a little bit, but I, I can't even function without it. And I stay up until morning. I don't ever, I almost never go to sleep in, a, in the nighttime. It's always um, 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning. I'm still up. Oh, and wow. then I'll go to bed when the rest of the world is up. Okay. So I'm weird. Yeah. Well, that's um. So when you sort of wake up from that, you know, you you got the coffee on. Like, how do now? What what then do you do to start sort of warming up for whatever work it is you're doing? Do you journal in the morning? Med- well, not morning, but when you wake up, do you journal or like meditate? I, you know, I, what? It, it's really weird because I have a a very obsessive little system. I have to go look at but like both sides of the news. Mm-hmm. So I go and check the news. I have to, you know, look at the liberal news and the conservative news so I can see what bullshit they're spreading. And then 
I have to go read this one cartoon, which is a really dorky cartoon, but I love it. It's Luann. I don't know why I'm addicted to it. So I have to check in on Luann every day. And then right after I do both of those, I'll go check all email, make sure I don't have anything that I need to do. And then after the email, I got to go over to Facebook and then I get sucked into there for a few hours. <laughs> and after that, I will finally go open whatever work I have to do. But I'm not kidding. It's like every day and the whole time I'm on Facebook in the in the vortex, I'm going, I really shouldn't be doing this. I, I need to stop. OK, one more. I'm going to read one more post and then I'm just going to scroll one more, just one little more time. And then I'm going to stop and I'm going to go do my, okay, but I just, oh, well, that is so, I've got to read this one, uh, you know. Yeah. So I have to do all of those things Yep. or I can't function. So what, um, what would you say is maybe some of the worst advice that you've ever received from, from somebody who's, you know, trying to maybe coach you in the right direction, but you're like, that's just that wasn't very good advice, and I took it, and I <laughs> took my medicine as a result of it. Um, let me think. I, I think the absolute worst advice, and it's sort of sad, but it's that, oh, anybody can be a writer. Mm-hmm. I don't know why that bothers me, but it's just not, it's not true that anybody can be a writer. It is hard. It's hard work. So when, when people have said that, it's a dismissive kind of thing that they're – they're putting down the hard work that writers do and they're saying, oh, I can do it too. So, you know, we don't, we're not giving you any, any credit whatsoever. And I just think that's a terrible thing to say to someone. Yeah. And, and the other side of that is when people say you need to just not, you know, don't give up your day job Mm -hmm. and they're just being an ass because they think that, that you have to have a real job that you can't really write. And that goes for anyone. You shouldn't tell people either extreme like that. There's got to be somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. How have you, like, what have, what has been some of the, the biggest lessons you've learned in your career writing? Just, you know, what were some of the bumps and bruises you've taken? And, uh, and how have you sort of weathered through that over the years? Honestly, the best lesson ever was that I learned that creative nonfiction or nonfiction in general isn't boring textbook stuff. And up until I I entered the MFA program, I always thought I was going to write fiction and I cannot write fiction. What was I thinking? Mm -hmm. Oh, my Lord. So whenever I took the first nonfiction class and I found out that they weren't talking about boring crap, which is what the majority yeah. of people think about nonfiction. I thought, now that that's the best thing I can tell people. Because I, in my classes, all my students come in there with the same exact thought. They all come in thinking they're going to write best-selling novels. And they don't have a single clue when they have a distinct narrative voice that that will work for writing creative nonfiction. I've had so many people figure out, like I did, that you don't that writing wasn't what they needed to do all along. That nonfiction is the is the thing. That's where they fit. So they need. I just know that they need to know there's another option if you aren't successful in fiction. So who were some of the nonfiction icons that that turned the light bulb on for you? 
Well, definitely. Okay, Stephen King's memoir is on writing. So he was the first, and and actually he was the first that I read, and and I thought, oh, that's what this is. Okay, I get it. He's not just a fiction writer. He has it all. And then Haven Kimmel's Zippy was next. Mm -hmm. But then after that, I I got introduced to David Sedaris and Augustine Burroughs. Um, uh, God, I think I would, anything, I would clip their toenails for them if they would just, you know, if they would give me their feet, I will do anything at all. And then Ellen DeGeneres is another one. Um, I'd like Tina Fey's, but not as much as Ellen DeGeneres. Anything that's humorous, I'm all over. Mm-hmm. So I like that. Have you read uh, Mindy Kaling's? Uh, I forget the name of her book. Uh, uh, that's bad. Uh, but her book is hilarious. Do you know who Mindy Kaling is? She she was on The Office. Mindy Kaling. Okay. Oh, you're going to have to edit this out. <laughs> but I am not a Mindy Kaling fan. All right. I cannot. I just can't. There are okay. There are some female memoir writers, I go gangbusters to go and buy the thing, and then I read it, and I go, what the hell? Who paid this person? That is not fair. They got paid to write that, and it is crap. So I get very offended when there are bad celebrity written, you know, mm-hmm. so, ew, yeah. sorry. I usually have a, a rule of thumb that if the author's picture is on the cover of the book, it's probably not that good. Uh, <laughs> it's it, by and large. I mean, I think Tina Fey's is brilliant. Uh, I I liked Amy Poehler's. It wasn't as good as Tina's, but Amy Poehler's was pretty good. Um, I, it was I, okay. I was sort of disappointed. And Chelsea Handler, I'm like, girl, mm-hmm. please don't write any more of those. Please yeah. just do not. I could I I couldn't get through her. Uh, I believe it was the the vodka one. I I couldn't get through it. It was I was listening to it. I had the audio book and it was by it, it what she wasn't reading it. It was somebody else and the the narrator was just kind of irritating. So I wonder like if I just read the book if I would like it better. Uh, but whoever whoever was behind the mic for it, I just it was kind of annoying. So um, I just I I want it to sound like the person. I, yeah. That the thing that appeals to me is when you read a writer and know that that is that person's voice. You can hear them reading those books that way, and and the ones that fall flat to me don't. They don't sound like the person. Yeah. So I'm like ah, I just yeah. can't do it. Yeah. So I wonder what other. Um, artistic media documentaries or feature films um, just even going to an art museum like what other stuff uh, sort of inspires you to to uh, to color in the lines of your nonfiction everything music used to be my entire life it used to be I can't hear it anymore but mm. um, when I was growing up my mother was a singer that was her profession and my brother is a professional singer and musician and I was a vocalist for all of my life until I lost my hearing. And that, that was my, I mean, that was my thing. So I, I remember thinking when I was in high school that I couldn't imagine a time that I would ever not be in love with music and have it on 24 hours a day. So it's really sort of foreign for me not to have it. I, I miss it a lot. Mm. But movies take up 
a big amount of that because of closed captioning. Mm. Whenever um, I got really bad and I couldn't hear anymore and they didn't have captions, I had to quit going to movies. And that was really depressing because then I didn't have movies or music. But then they got those little caption readers. And I'm not kidding. We used to go to back-to-back two movies on Friday, back-to-back two movies on Saturday. I mean, we'd just be at the theater the whole weekend. (laughs) And I couldn't wait for Fridays to get here for whatever new releases were out. So that's my, my big, huge passion. So what what was the the challenge of dealing with the your hearing loss? Because especially that you had such a love for music, and then to to lose the sense that let you appreciate that. I, like, what was that like for you? I hate it. I mean, I I mean, I or really it, yeah. really really hate losing it, and I have the the hardest time writing it. I can't write about it because I just it like fold up and start crying and it's the weirdest thing i i can barely talk about it without just dissolving and i can't figure that out so i (laughs) i do have to to ponder it and write about it in order to figure out what i really think about it 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 was such a just a massive loss to me that i have never processed it Mm. i really yeah, yeah, and I wonder too. You, you've you've won this. You've won this very awesome award with this beautiful essay, hilarious essay on marriage. And uh, I wonder what's next for you. What's your next project? What's the big thing that you're working on? I'm so excited about this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is so cool. But okay, it's not the, the story itself is not cool. It is horrible. But um, a friend of mine from high school in Warner Robins, Georgia, is currently in jail because he was in prison for life for murdering his wife and presumably his six-year-old daughter. They've never found her, so we don't know what became of her. They found his wife in the landfill, which was god-awful. So he was convicted of this crime, and he went through all of the appeals processes, and then out of the blue... Juror misconduct fell in his lap, and they threw out his conviction. Hmm. So he's been moved to the jail instead of the prison and is awaiting the new trial that's going to be in the spring, I think, or some, sometime in 2017. And it is just the coolest story ever because the the. They're absolutely two divided schools of thought. I mean, they either think he's totally guilty or he's not at all. And I, I have no idea. I mm. cannot decide. But I have direct correspondence with him all the time. Mm. And I'm loving it because I'm, I get to, to write him. I write him. He writes me back. Yeah. And I have this really unique perspective on this story. So I'm going to go out and cover the trial and um, write. I'm just going to write this however it pans out. Yeah, very nice. And uh, one one last question. Um, where can people find you online? Say it again. Where can people find you online? Oh, um, I have a website that is elainejohnson.com. And I'm on Twitter and Facebook and if you go on elainejohnson.com, you'll, you'll be able to find my Twitter and Facebook because they're not as easy to, to remember. And Elaine does not have an I in it, so that's the, the key. 
Gotcha. Well, thank you so much for coming on the program. Like, uh, congratulations on winning the the essay contest. Like, what an Thanks. honor! And honor for me to be able to talk to a winner of an essay contest like this. So, this is a lot of fun. Thank you so much. I loved it. it was oh, great. you're welcome. I'll let you know when everything's up. 